Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. G'day, I'm Steve Vischer. And I'm Grant McCarran. And we're from Plane Crazy Down Under, Australia's aviation show. And you can find us at planecrazydownunder.com. We reckon for the best coverage of the Kiwi warbird, restoration and aviation scene, you can't go past Dave Homewood and the Wings Over New Zealand show. On you, Dave. Yeah, good on you, mate. Yeah, we've got to get to New Zealand soon. Where is that anyway? Well, it's where I grew up. I thought that was Brisbane. The Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings of New Zealand show. Uh, we're here once again with Noel Cruz and uh, on a very special topic, and that's an aircraft that's taken over his life almost, uh, his Ryan STM. Hi, Noel. Hi, Dave. And yes, it has. It's taken over my life for a long time now. When I was a uh, small boy, learning how to fly, well, not learning, but flying model airplanes at a place called Moorabbin Airport in Melbourne. Yep. This is even before I started doing pilot training there. We used to haunt the place, 10-year-olds and so forth, haunt this airfield, watching all the airplanes taxi by. Because in those days, I must admit, you could. You could lean on this post and rail fence and almost touch the airplane taxiing by. Right. Now, you're behind a cyclone wire fence, and if you tried, someone will arrest you because you're a terrorist, which is absolutely bloody absurd. Exactly. And that's another story. And, of course, in those days, the, 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 the predominant airplane was the tiger moth, and there were puss moths and other high-winged and low-winged things. And they were all... Uh, they didn't turn me on. As a 10-year-old boy, they didn't turn me on much at all. But I remember one day seeing this little silver bullet taxi past. And all I could think of was, wow, what is that? Well, it turned out, I don't know where I'm, I actually learned the name, it was called a Ryan, a Ryan STM. Great. And it was just a sort of, it was this image of this polished silver metal airplane. Just looked really cool. Yes. Yeah. Um, and over the years... Um, it's always been in the back of my mind in, in terms of you pick up a magazine and, and the pictures of airplanes, but if it was a picture of a Ryan, I'd focus on, oh, there's that Ryan, or there's a Ryan. Yeah. And I can remember years and years later um, when I was in the Air Force, we used to get passing across our desk, would you believe, the, the complete aircraft register, which is like a phone book. Why the hell we ever got it, I don't know. What do you do with a phone book? We probably look up all the other people with your name in the local area, right. and I would look up how many Ryans there were because that was the only airplane that sort of appealed to me. So it would always be in the back of my mind. Now, before I get into my sort of involvement with with the with the Ryan, maybe I should explain what it is and where it came from. Sure. Because these are a very pretty little airplane, which is why they caught my attention. It was made by the Ryan Aeronautical Company, which is the same company that made Lindbergh's airplane. In 1928, Lindbergh flew across the Atlantic in an airplane. Yep. In 1934, the same company invented and built this new thing they called a Ryan ST. It was called the ST was sports trainer. Okay. And it was a bit of a hybrid airplane, and it was an all-metal fuselage, monocoque fuselage. It had uh, wood-sparred fabric-covered wings, and it was wire brace. So it was a wire brace monoplane. Interesting. Yep. A lot of the old racing airplanes, the old GB races and things of the era, were very similar. In fact, it was designed, the wing shape and all was very similar to the old GB races. Okay. They were the, the hot ship style of the day. So, of course, here's Mr. Ryan wanted to sell these things as a, a marketable private airplane. He made them look that sort of slick, but with a much slimmer fuselage, not the big flying silos that some of those races were. Yeah. <clears throat> 
And the original aeroplane had a 90 horsepower engine and the first flew which test plane and it proved to be quite gutless. 90 horsepower was not enough. So they only made about two or three of the STs and they then upgraded to the STA which had a 120 horsepower Manasco engine and the Manascos were the, the engine of the day in the States. Yep. And that went really well and became very popular. And uh, I don't know how many STAs they sold in the, the, the late 1930s, because 1934 the first one flew, and that was about the same year that the Tiger Moth flew too, so you just put them next to each other and you can see a whole different design philosophy between a good British aeroplane and a good American aeroplane. Definitely, yeah. Uh, I've been an American aeroplane fan ever since, as <laughs> we know. Anyway, there was uh, about this stage uh, a lot of aerobatic competitions and air shows and the Ryan featured very highly, and there was an American guy named Tex Rankin who fell in love with the Ryan STA for air show work, but said, I want more horsepower. So they hung a supercharged Manasco in it, okay. called it the STA Special. And it had 150, 160 horsepower supercharged, and it really went well. It only won the International Aerobatic Competition or something championship in those days in this thing. And Mr. Ryan then realized that there was a, a potential market here outside of the, um, the civilian. Uh, side of things uh, as a military trainer. So he developed the STA Special into what ultimately would be called the STM. The M stands for military, sports trainer military. Right. They made the cockpit cut out a little bit bigger to fit bum parachutes. They uh, uh, made the supercharged engine standard and just a few little tweaks like that to make this uh, usable for military purposes. Yeah. And they offered it to the United States Air Force, well, it's Army Air Corps, bigger pub and also overseas air forces, and several of them were interested. The United States Army Air Corps was interested, but their objection was that the supercharged engine was, shall we say, not student um, compatible, that you had to be careful you didn't overboost the engine by shoving the throttle too harshly and so forth, and students are prone to doing that. So they said, no, we don't want that engine, we want a, a more robust, student-friendly engine. So they hung a radial up the front called a Kinner radial. Right. And that became the PT-16, and it went, it went off on a different path. Ultimately, they developed that particular model, and they lengthened it by a foot, beefed up the undercarriage, made it more robust for student pilot landings. It became a thing called the PT-22. The United States Air Force, or Army Air Corps, had thousands of these things. They were their basic trainer of the era. Yeah. Uh, but it kind of lost its, its prettiness. It became an ugly duckling airplane. Very robust, but a bit of an ugly duckling. I flew one once. And a bit heavier, I didn't like it as much as the STM that I flew way back. Yeah. The M became an export aeroplane and was purchased by the Argentinians, by the Chinese, Chiang Kai-shek's Air Force had uh, a bunch of them, okay. and the Dutch. I fell in love with it and bought hundreds of them. But about the time that they actually were taking delivery, if you can call it that, signing on the dotted line, uh, Holland was under German occupation. So the only sort of Dutch Air Force or Navy arm was not in Europe, it was in Java. Right. right? Because that was still a, a Dutch colony, if you like, in those days. So 120 uh, of these Ryan STMs were sent to Java over a period of about 12 months or so, in various batches. And there were two distinct models, it was just the STM, and then there was a slightly uh, uprated, or not uprated, but a beefed up center section called the STM S2, which was a seaplane model. Okay. And all it had was just a heavier center section. Apart from that, it was exactly the same airplane. Right? Because 60 of the airplanes went to the Netherlands East Indies Air Force, and the other 60 went to the Netherlands Far East Indies Naval Air Service, which is a bit of a mouthful. Yeah. Okay. When the Japanese came down through uh, the islands, they pushed down through Java, all of the uh, of uh, the uh, Air Force ones were captured and destroyed one way or another. They pushed down towards the bottom of Java where the naval base was and they managed to evacuate 34 of them to Australia. Threw them on a ship, got them the hell out of there and it ran the gauntlet of Japanese air attacks and the whole thing. And so 34 of these Ryan STM S2s and STMs, an assortment of them, made it to Australia in 1942. Right. right. Yeah, that's right, 1942, early 42. Now, the ones in Argentina, they all just sort of vanished into the jungle. No one's ever seen them. 
Chiang Shek's Air Force lost every one of theirs, one way or another, because they were under serious air attack, of course, from the Japanese up there. So none of those airplanes ever saw the light of day again. Right. The only STMs in existence all came from this batch of 34, which made it to Australia. Okay. So they all have their the same heritage, if you like. Yep. Netherlands East Indies Air Force through Java um, to Australia. The Australian Air Force took them on board with only 34 aeroplanes that you couldn't sort of do much with them because, I mean, they had like a thousand Tiger Moths to teach pilots to fly. So they were, once they got them airborne, it took about six months or more to reassemble them and sort them out. They uh, they served in the Australian Air Force then till the end of the war as General Dog's Body aeroplanes, you know, CO's taxis and so forth. The one particular one which we'll talk about in a moment, of course, was used for air observer training and all that sort of thing. And in 1945, they were demobilised and sold for 400 pounds each. Oh, I don't wish. That's about a thousand New Zealand dollars here. Yeah. And an outfit in Melbourne bought them as a job lot. Bought the whole, I think, about 30 of them. Um, 28, 30 of them had survived. They crashed a few within the Air Force operations. Yeah. And they were all in a big storage thing, uh, development, uh, storage area called Evans Head, or at a place called Evans Head, which is just south of the Gold Coast, south of Brisbane. Yeah. And uh, sort of paraphrasing what really happened, the, uh, the company down Melbourne signed on the dotted line and parted with their money on the Monday and said, right, we'll be there to pick them up by train on Wednesday. But on the Tuesday, a tropical cyclone hit Evans Head and dropped the, uh, the roof of the two, the roofs of the two hangars on top of these aeroplanes and smashed some of them completely. Others were, had minor damage. So, so when they got there with their trains to ship them out, they had a whole bunch of junk. And, and some airplanes were good, some airplanes not so good. They took them down to Melbourne. Over the next couple of years then, they managed to mix and match. Some of them re-emerged re with two wings, different one airplane here, one airplane there. Yeah. A couple of them survived virtually unscathed because they were in the right corner of the hangar, if you like. And one of them in particular, uh, 492 is the serial number, which is the one we, we're focusing on. Uh, only had a slightly damaged aileron, so it was virtually unscathed, so it was pretty good. About 20 of them made it to the civilian market. Okay. Um, so we've gone from 34, from, we've gone from several hundreds down to 20 and finally made it to the civilian market, and nowhere else in the world did these aeroplanes exist except in, this, in Australia, and there was about 20 of them. And they, uh, they had a check in history, they went to various private owners and to flying schools and so forth over the, over the time. And uh, 492 was uh, civilian registered as uh, Alpha Hotel Charlie, VH Alpha Hotel Charlie in, in, uh, in Oz. And it went and served uh, with the Mackay Aerocop for a while. And then in 1966, it was purchased by a guy named Val Chapman, right. who moved it to a town called Gerildery. And of course, everyone will say, where the hell is Gerildery? Well, most people in Australia wonder where the hell Gerildery is. <laughs> in the middle of Ned Kelly country for the Aussies, uh, in the middle of nowhere for the rest of the world. <laughs> <laughs> Especially when it comes to rain. I remember uh, years later, I spoke to Val, I said, what about you know, corrosion and so forth? He said, corrosion? He said, when the great flood hit, Gerildery got two points. <laughs> in the middle of dry, dry countryside. Yeah. Anyway, Val had two of these things. And I'm saying all this from retrospective now because I didn't know any of this at the time. And many had been crashed. A couple had been exported. One came to here to New Zealand in the 50s and is still flying up in Ardmore. It yeah. now has a different engine because they had a problem with the original engine. A couple, I think, went back to the United States. And I have not heard where the devil they are anymore. But I suppose there's probably about 10 which can be accounted for right now. Okay. Okay. Of that 10, one of them was particular interest to what we're talking about because long before a lot of this stuff I, I knew about the, the, the recent history of the, the aeroplanes um, I still had this in the back of my mind thought about Ryan's and so forth so this is where it comes into my life about 1980 I'm sitting behind a desk and I'm, I'm now a caribou pilot I was a caribou pilot I've now got a desk job for about 12 months scheduling aircraft and so forth on the base and these magazines would float across your desk, as I mentioned, the aircraft register and so forth. And a, a local Australian, Australia-owned pilot's magazine came floating across the desk and you thumbed through it. And there's usually not much of, of interest to a military pilot in them. And as I'm thumbing through it, I see this little ad which says Ryan STM for sale yeah. and a phone number. That's all it was. 
and buried at the top of the page. And I went, ah, oh, one of those. I, I know, I know that I kind of like them. Gee, wouldn't it be really great to own one of those? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Threw the magazine on the side into my two hard tray, which was always pretty big. <laughs> and in parallel with that, this is an interesting little philosophical thing. Every Air Force desk has these flip-over desk calendars, right? in which you have the date, obviously. And down the bottom is some pithy little fortune cookie comment on the bottom. Right? And I notoriously would not flip over mine for weeks at a time because I just never got around to it. I'd hardly ever looked at the damn things. And I had flipped it over to a particular date. I can't remember exactly what it was, but down the bottom was this little quotation which said, the trouble with most people is they reach a conclusion before they get to the end. And I look at this ad and I look at this little quotation and I thought, huh, here I'm wondering what it would be like to own a Ryan. What would it cost me just to ring this phone number and find out what the deal is? So I rang the phone number. And it turned out to be a guy in Sydney who said, oh, well, my aeroplane is actually down at Gerildery. It's the first time I've ever heard of the word Gerildery himself. Um, if you ring this other guy and his name named Val Chapman and he'll uh, tell you how to, how to look at it. Oh, okay, fine, thank you, click. Yeah. And the magazine and the desk calendar sat there for another two or three days without doing anything because I got busy doing other things. And uh, again, this desk calendar saying, well, you know, what are you going to do about this? You made one miserable phone call. Make the next phone call. So I rang this Val Chapman guy and said, g'day, see the ad. What's the deal? He said, oh, well, yeah, you come on down and I'll show it to you. you know, it's for sale. It's a beautiful airplane. Blah, blah, blah. I thought, oh, okay, fine. Um, where's Gerildery? <laughs> <laughs> so he kind of explained where it was and they had a little, had a, a thousand meter grass strip out the back of the town and all the rest of it. Oh, fine. Thank you very much. Down. Again, okay, another week goes by. The magazine is still lying there. I think maybe by now the magazine had moved on, but my little desk calendar is still saying, yeah. Have you reached a conclusion yet? Have you got to the end? What's it cost you? Two phone calls. Doesn't yeah. even cost you that. They're taxpayers' phone calls. <laughs> and even though I was sitting behind a desk, uh, I was allowed a certain currency flying in the caribou right, to maintain my currency until I got back onto the full time. And uh, one of my good buddies was the flight commander down there at the time, and also the senior loadmaster. Uh, 38th Squadron was an aircraft restorer and he had restored this beautiful Tiger Moth which he used to let me fly and I've been flying this Tiger Moth regularly at weekends yep. and so he was the perfect man to have a look at a vintage aeroplane so I wandered down to see Phil and I said hey you know um, I need a bit of currency flying where do you want to go so I want you and, and, and Ken the loadmaster to come with me we're going to go to Gerildery where's that <laughs> <laughs> So we worked out a little flight plan down to Gerildy. It was about, oh, I think it was about two hours in a caravan, a straight line down there. So a few days later, uh, I rang Val and said, we'll be arriving on this particular day. And sure enough, so we hopped in the caravan, we flew to Gerildery and landed there. And half the town turned out because it turned out a caravan was the biggest aeroplane to ever land at Gerildery's airstrip. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but it was, a per it was too long. A caravan could have landed half the length. You know, it was yeah. no challenge at all. Anyway, got out the back of the aeroplane. I sort of said to, to the assembled crowd, does anyone know Bell Chapman? And this old guy up the back said, yeah, that's me. Come over here. You must be Noel. And it was this real old bushy. He was in his 80s. He had this beaten up old hat, old clothes. He had this beaten up old motor car. And I thought, oh, my God, where have I come? Beverly Hillbilly stuff, this. <laughs> so Ken and, and Phil and I hopped in his car and we rattled out for about four miles out along this road to this farm, wheat farm it was. And in the middle of this wheat farm, this big paddock, was this big shed. And we drove out to this shed, and it had, didn't have doors. It was an open-fronted hay shed. Yeah. And sitting there in the front of the shed was this Ryan. And I, I took one look at it and went, ah, no, nah, that's not the one. It was painted red, a sort of an old letterbox red, and yeah. it was a bit peely, and it was covered in dust, and it just didn't look right at all. And Val started telling me, oh, it's got this, it's got a Gypsy Major engine. I said, what, not the original engine? No, 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 this was made up of bits after the, the first batch was sold into the market. These were made up, so it's been a bit of a bit of an aeroplane that's got it. And I thought, ah, no, that's not, that, that's not my dream aeroplane at all. Right. But in the back of this hay shed was this huge, mountainous tarpaulin laying over something, obviously an aeroplane because of the size of it. Yeah. And sticking out under the bottom edge of this tarpaulin were these two little silver booties, little spats. Yeah. 
and they were polished metal. And I took one look at them and thought, ah. I said to Val, I said, what's that? He said, oh, that's my run. Can I have a look at it? No, no, no. You've come to look at Tony Fisher's run. I said, well, I'll tell you right now, I've looked at it, I don't like it. Right? We can either leave right now or you can show me what that is. Yeah. Oh, okay. So he drags the tarpaulin off and there it was. There was my silver run. Ah, in absolutely original condition. The original engine, everything about it. It was covered in dust and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, but you can see through that. And I just told him, I looked at him and thought, that's the one. That might have even been the one I saw as a kid. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how many of them actually flew around in polished metal throughout that era, but this one did. It had never been painted. It was always a polished metal, right. right? So it could have been the same airplane that I saw when I was 10 years old. And uh, we crawled all over it, and I said to Val, I said, is this for sale? And he sort of reluctantly said, oh, yeah. I said, well, how come? He said, well, I've just got rid of the other one. He had two of them. Okay. So what's going on? He said, well, I've just sold the property and the new owner wants them out. And uh, I said, well, you know, can't you take them somewhere else and fly? He said, no, I've kind of given up flying now. I haven't flown this one for about oh, three years, he said, was the last time. I've been sitting in the corner of the hay shed for about three years. Yeah. And I looked at him. Uh, he was about 85 or 83. I said, so what, you lost your license when you were 80, did you? He said, oh, no, he said, I lost that about 20 years ago, but who cares about that? <laughs> He's just been flying this thing out. <laughs> Some medical thing. So he was still insistent that he was not going to take a sale off Tony Fisher. Yep. And I'm saying, forget it. I'm not interested in that red airplane. It does not suit me at all. This is the airplane I'm interested in. And all of a sudden, I'm listening to myself thinking, hey, I'm sort of pushing this, you know. I have no idea how I can afford it or anything like that, but I just... That's it, you know, this is the airplane. Yeah. So Val showed us all of his, uh, we spent the next, the rest of the afternoon there, listening to his old stories, and he was a fascinating old guy. He had, uh, he flew from way back. He dragged out this old yellowed photo album and showed pictures, and there's a photograph of himself working on the engine of Kingswood Smith's Southern Cross. Wow. Yeah. And I'm saying, what, what's, what's with this? He said, oh, when Smithy's first airline went belly up, he said he went barnstorming, and I was barnstorming in the little Avro Avion he had, and we teamed up for a while. I said, so why are you working on the engine and, and so forth? He said, well, he said, he said something I'd read in the history books about Smithy. He was a really great pilot, but a lousy mechanic. <laughs> <laughs> he said, he's in town chatting up the birds. I'm working on his bloody airplane. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, by now the, the sun is getting low on the horizon. We said, look, we've got to go because even the Air Force has a, a small policy about taking off in the dark without runway lights and things like that. Oh, yeah, so he drove us back to the airport. And on the way back, he said, he said I've had a really good time with you guys because Ken Howe, of course, was interested in asking questions and he's showing us all these old, old headsets and memorabilia. Wish I'd got my hands on some of that now too. He said, I really like you guys. He said, yeah, they've been a really good time. He said, okay, he said, I'll sell you the airplane. I said, okay, and uh, how much are you wanting for it? He said, 20 grand. Oh, my face fell off. 20 grand, those days were a lot of money. Yeah. He knew he had a rare machine on his hands and he wasn't going to pay for it. I had a friend who, who, who would offer me a, a chipmunk for 16, a fully operational flying chipmunk, which I had planned for 16 grand. That's the price of airplanes back then. Right, right. So, ah, oh, there it is. There's no way you know, I could afford this. But I wanted it. By now, I really wanted it. Uh, but the price is beyond my reach. Wife, two kids, mortgage, the, the whole nine yards. And so we got back to the airport and I thanked him very much. We got on the caribou, took off and flew. I, I, I do not remember the flight home. I'm just sitting there thinking, how am I going to do it? How am I going to do it? How am I going to do it? The caribou just took us home like an old dob and it knew the way home all by itself. <laughs> anyway, I'm thinking about it. And of course, now I'm bringing the wife into the picture. And she's saying, well, if you really want it, you should get it. Can't afford it. And this little desk calendar kept saying, you know, the problem with most people is you reach a conclusion before you get to the end. I thought I'd reach the end because I had decided I couldn't afford it. Yeah. And my wife said, well, why don't we go and talk to the bank and see what we can borrow? Okay, so we go down to the bank and I'm thinking that they're going to laugh at me because in those days you had to go and bend a knee to borrow money for a home. Mm. That was back before the, the days like recently where they throw money at you. So rather than going in there with a pleading sort of attitude, I walked in there, Boulder's brass and said, G'day, I want to talk to any loans officers about borrowing some money to buy an airplane. And this guy said, yeah, what sort? Uh, 
a Ryan STM. Ah, oh, great airplane. I'm talking to an aviation buff, <laughs> a vintage aviation buff, nice. who bent over backwards. Oh, yeah, I'm sure we can do this. And he worked out this whole bunch of numbers and so forth and handed me this piece of paper with the, the, the repayment schedule. And I took one look at it and bang, there it was. I was at the end. There's no way I could afford these repayments. I can't remember what the numbers were. It was an awful lot of money per month over and above all the other costs of, of living. Yeah. Uh, okay, the little desk calendar, there you are. I've reached, the, I've reached the end. I went home feeling a little bit despondent about this. And over the weekend, of course, this piece of paper lying on the kitchen table and my wife was looking at it and she pulls out the pocket calculator. I think we had them back in those days, or the slider, I can't remember what now. And she's doing a few sums. And after she'd been doing this for 15 minutes or so, she said, no, I think he's made a mistake in his sums. So what do you mean? I think he's multiplied when he should have divided or vice versa. When I do the sums, it comes out significantly less for repayments. And so I did the sums 10 times. Yeah. And we did them again, each other, 20 times. And on the Monday morning, I rang him up and said, um, I think you made a mistake. He said, yeah, I've been meant to ring you. He said, yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, yeah, I shouldn't divide it when I should multiply or something like that. <laughs> I said, so the figure is, I can't remember what it was now, but it was you know, a couple of hundred bucks a month. Or he said, yeah, that's right. I said, shit. I can afford that. <laughs> and so within a blur of time, I'm down there signing the documents, got in touch with Val Chapman and said, deal, you know, money's on the way. And uh, within about a week or so forth, the money had been created and, and, and sent to him. So bang, now I'm an owner of a Ryan STM covered in bulldust in a hay shed in Geraldry. And with a, with a word, get it out quick, the owner wants it out. Yeah. <laughs> the next problem is, how do I do that? <laughs> and of course, Val said, I'll just crank it up and fly it out. I'm thinking, no, nah, no, it's, it hasn't flown for three years, and you could feel the hornet's nest, so you could pack the fabric in the wings and feel things rolling around. A lot of hornets are going to build their mud nests inside them. Yeah. But no, it's going to need a good strip down, a good, good, good clean up at least. So uh, I thought, okay, well, I could. I had Ken Howard had a mate who had a, an aircraft trailer. Right? So well, that would do it big enough that I could, I could tow it down there, but my car, I only had a little, some little car, I'll have to borrow a car, I can do, yeah, I can borrow a car and drag down there. But I'm thinking, gee, it's a long trip by car. It's a good two days, you know, maybe two days back if I drive carefully, because I don't to drive crazy. Yeah. And we ought to store it overnight. All these little logistical problems we had, and could it be damaged? And then I had an epiphany. But wait a minute, there's another way around this. Here I am in charge of Air Force air transport scheduling. <laughs> <laughs> and as it turned out I had already been posted out uh, to go, actually to go back to the caribou squadron to fly and uh, and it wouldn't fit in the caribou it's too big yeah. for caribou but it would fit in the C-130 so I went to my boss who uh, was the officer commanding the whole base because I was one of his staff and I said boss normally when your staff is posted out and leave you give them a little pat on the back and a few drinks on a Friday afternoon and hand them a, a, a pewter and say farewell. And he says, yeah, that's normal. I said, well, look, I've got enough pewters. He said, what do you want? I said, I want a C-130. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> uh, I had found one which was going on a training flight from Richmond to Edinburgh in Adelaide and back again, okay? Basically empty, crew training operation it was. And Geraldry was only about a 20 minute diversion left of track halfway along. Okay. And, he, and I said, you know, so I lay it on him. I say, right, and Drillby, I said, it'd be a good stall airfield practice for a C-130, and of course it's an ex-RAAF vintage aeroplane, right? And he oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Stop giving me the snow job. Okay, you can do it. But for God's sake, don't let it get out anywhere. We can do it. So next thing, so I have a C-130. So I spoke to the crew, and they're all keyed up to do it. I thought, this would be fun, going to a little place like that. Borrowed the trailer. I was told I couldn't use a civilian car to tow it, so I went down to a local army unit which was on the base there and borrowed one of their Land Rovers and the coupling wouldn't fit, so they up with their welding guns and changed it. And suddenly all think everything's coming into place. They welded a new coupling on, so I have a, an army Land Rover and I've got the trailer and I've got a C-130. So come the day, we roll this into the back of the C-130 and we head off to Geraldry. And uh, lobbed into Geraldry Airport in a C-130. Remember, the Caribou being the biggest aeroplane, this is twice as big. The whole town turns up now. They didn't even shut the engines down, just dropped the ramp. We drove this thing out the back and said, we'll see you in four hours. Right? Drove out to the, uh, to, the, to the paddock and uh, I picked up a couple of army guys along because 
oh, that's right, yeah, I couldn't drive an army jeep because I was an army, so there was an army driver, and the army always has an observer or something. So two army guys, that was good. So there was there was Ken and, and, and me, and, and, and uh, anyway, there was about four or five of us. Yeah. And when we got out there, Valor recruited a couple of people. So there was about half a dozen people, which made easy work of it, because we had to take the wings off, so make this thing fit. Yeah. And from the time we hit there till the time we drove back into the airport gate was almost exactly four hours. As we got through the airfield gate, I call it airport, airfield gate, there was a C-130 overhead for landing. Right? Took the wings off, braced up the undercarriage and folded the best we could, stacked it on the top of the Land Rover and on the trailer and drove it on back. And the, the, they shut down the hook this time. We drove it back onto the back of the airplane and tied it all down and took off and flew it back to Richmond Air Base. And didn't go to the normal air movement section uh, to offload this cargo. <laughs> right around the back, the back tarmac there, and drove it out the back and straight into the 38 squadron hangar. I got photographs of it coming off the hook there, very <laughs> quietly, and so that no one would know, except the Geraldry Daily Bugle, or it's called Banner Headlines. You know, <laughs> Air Force visits Geraldry. Fortunately, though, nobody outside of Geraldry reads the local Daily Bugle, so it didn't really hit the mainstream press at all. About yeah. What was the C-130 doing there? So now I have a Ryan STM sitting in the 38 Squadron hangar. I'd just been posted to 38 Squadron as a flight commander, so it was pretty easy to manipulate a little bit of room in the corner. Yes. Yeah. And as I then examined the airplane in detail, I found that, oh yeah, it's a bit more work than I first thought. Like all the fabric had to be stripped off and redone, it was getting a bit old. It was still the original fabric from Java days, you know, never been upgraded. Oh, okay, yeah. And uh, I got pulled things out, pulled the seats out, sort of stripped it uh, roughly down, pulled. I pulled a little head, little padded headrest out of the little thing behind the, the, the head there, a little chronicle metal section, and it's one solid hornet's nest for about a foot. Ooh. So having so I decided right, strip it right down, pull all the instrument panels out, all this sort of stuff. This is over a period of months now, and turn the fire hose on it, literally, and just blasted all of these hornets' nests and things out the back, <laughs> and uh, cleared. It just it was just this skeleton of a fuselage. Yeah. And the smartest thing I did then, because the Thirty Eight Squadron had its own maintenance uh, operation there, engines as well, and I had this inhibiting stuff, long term inhibiting material for Pratt and Whitney engines like a big vat of treacle, which you heat up and it thins out of it then with a big pressure spray, you can flood it everywhere. Yeah. So I put a boroscope over the engine, turned it over a bit, and it, would, it looked pretty clean inside, so we buried it in this stuff, in through every orifice I could find in the engine, through the, the uh, oil holes, through all the spark plug holes, and just buried it in this inhibiting compound, believing that it might be 12 months before I get back to that. 30 years later, <laughs> I now have this airplane completely stripped down into a million components which I now have to clean and repaint and put back together. So ostensibly for the next 30 years I cleaned the airplane. Yeah. Because uh, I say 30 years, I was going to do a lot quicker than that but then one thing led to another. Because this was in 1980 when I bought it. In 1983 I decided to leave the Royal Australian Air Force and set up my own business at flying school. And that was a 24-7 hard-on operation to survive, building a flying school from scratch, uh, all by myself initially, and then with a couple of other Air Force buddies to help me as we, as we developed. It really was a hard time, very satisfying time. Now, this is a whole other story, of course, but you know, my, my latent flying instructor desires came back out, and I think I did a pretty good job of it because our flying school boomed. But you, know, you couldn't sit back and relax. So, and I wound up owning, or me and the bank owning up to 10 airplanes. That's flying school. Right. Specials, McKinney 260s, Robins, all that sort of stuff. All aerobatic airplanes, by the way. And, um, and I used to do a fair bit of the, the, the donkey work on them myself for, for costing purposes. And so when I had the odd day off, the last thing I felt like doing was working on another airplane. Right, right. So the Ryan got, if you like, packed away and, and Stored, so like a god. Oh, I must have been. I must say, at this stage too, I got slightly ahead of myself. When we went to pick up the Ryan from Gerildery, um, Val's daughter was there, and okay. she said, "Oh, it'll be sad to see Charlie leave." I said, "What do you mean, Charlie? Oh, that's his name, Charlie. Alpha Hotel, Charlie. Charlie. That's the name that stuck. It is still Charlie. Even now, I have A B C Alpha Bravo Charlie. Yeah. So from now on." From that point forward, it uh, was Charlie. You know, Charlie is a member of the, has become a member of the family. He's like the son I never had, sort of thing. <laughs> uh, so Charlie got stored, 
along the way I had uh, a student who was an aircraft, another aircraft restorer and he wanted to learn to navigate so I did a deal, I taught him all, and, paid, and paid for free of charge all navigation and he did all the fabric work, stripped them down, did a beautiful job of the fabric and then we cocooned all the wings and bubble wrap and so forth and put in some... And so over the next 20 odd years, little bits were done on the aeroplane here, there and there, but never, you know, I got to the point where I'm thinking, oh my God, will this ever end? Because yeah. my first thought was I'll have it in the air in 12 months. <laughs> <laughs> 2006, the opportunity finally came to, I'd sold the flying school and I was made an offer to come here to New Zealand and uh, bring my toys with me. So I packed a pit special, which I, cause I had to have something to fly, yeah. and, and Charlie into a 40 foot container and sent the whole lot to New Zealand because I thought I've got to get on with this show. At this rate, I'll be long dead before it ever gets near the thing. So serious reassembly, shall we say. I'd say I'd I'd always do a little bit of cleaning and put it away. Like all these components, which I'd finished, cleaned, painted, polished, whatever, packed away. Wing root fairings, for instance. I remember I polished them a thousand years ago to a gleaming finish and then covered them in Vaseline and wrapped them in a, a plastic garbage bag. And a little while back, I pulled them out, washed the Vaseline off, and they are still gleaming. Right. So you want to keep aluminium long term, cover it in Vaseline. It's slimy, but it really does. <laughs> so I had a lot of it. I was surprised at how much I'd actually done when I started pulling things apart to see what I had to put together. Yeah. There was not a lot that I had to do except reassemble. So when I got it here, I moved into the hangar here at Hamilton Airport, and um, I moved two hangars. I had to move it once, but finally now in the one that suits and just started putting her back together again. The big thing was the engine. You know? I still wasn't sure about this engine. According to the logbooks, the uh, Charlie had a 700 odd hours total time on the airframe, okay. but the engine had been changed at about the 500 hour mark. The engine was supposed to only had about 190 hours on it. So theoretically it was a just run in engine. Yeah. But that was 30 odd years ago. How good had this inhibiting compound been? So the big imponderable, starting about three years ago, was, okay, before I go any further, I need to know whether I've got a good engine, because if I don't have a good engine, then I've got a major problem. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in terms of where do I get another one, or what can replace it? So under very intense supervision of uh, Paul Waterhouse from Central Aero, I pulled the engine down and uh, washed all this inhibiting compound off. Straight up I realized that this inhibiting compound was really, really good. It had covered everything. Okay. It took me a week to wash it off. I used, I used diesel so that I had that sort of spirit base, but also sufficiently oily that when I moved things, it wouldn't be dry. Yeah. And I just sat there for a week and poured buckets of diesel through this. And as it trickled out the bottom into this big plastic bucket, I'd scoop it up. And that's all I did for a week, and little by little, this gleaming brand new engine emerged. Could not believe it. Right. The inside of the crankcase is painted red. I thought to myself, who paints crankcases? Well, apparently back in those days they did, because castings were a bit more porous, so they actually sealed them with it. Oh, right. So I have this in- internal engine is painted red, but all the bearings and the big ends are actually gleaming like they've been polished. I can't believe it. Pulled the cylinders off, I sent them away to be professionally done. They were rehoned and the valves relapped and, and sorted out, but they were all cool. And everywhere I looked, put them, you know, the micrometer over bits and pieces, they were all well within tolerances, hardly anywhere at all. Okay. A couple of little things um, needed to be sorted out, but very, very little. And so we washed it all down and then started to reassemble. Okay. And uh, so now I'm really getting into it. In fact, for the last three years, I think it's been almost my full-time occupation. It's all I've done. I go to work five days a week yeah. to go over and work on Charlie and put it back together because I know I've got to get it done. Somewhere a long, long time ago, just stepping back in time a little bit, after I bought Charlie um, in 1980, by about 1983, my Air Force career was almost at an end. I'm stuck behind a desk, but also, just to get out of the, the office, I'm also involved in organising military air shows. Right. And civilian air shows on the side. Right. Uh, uh, 50 or 60 different air shows all around the country, so little air shows, big air shows. But the last one was the big bicentennial air show. Bicentennial, is that the word? 50th anniversary, whatever it is, for the Australian Air Force. 
By now I'm back involved in GA a little bit because um, I'm not flying behind the desk. I'm a member of the aerobatic club and all that sort of stuff. And uh, so I invite, because this is a historical air show from the Air Force, I invited a whole bunch of antique aircraft owners to bring their airplanes. The Air Force agreed and provided the fuel because they were ex-military airplanes. Right. Like we had uh, Hudson and a few things like that. And Ryan. A guy named Don Kendall had a Ryan down at Wagga, and I invited him to bring it up. Okay. Which he did, flew it. And anyway, the air show was all over. At the end of the air show, he came to me and he said, look, you've got a Ryan, so you must know how to fly them. Um, I've got to get back to work. I don't have time to take this thing home. And literally handed me the keys and said, bring it back at your convenience. And, and, and vanished. I, I didn't have the heart to tell him I'd never flown Ryan in my life. <laughs> okay. So now I've got Don's Ryan uh, up in Ambly Air Base, and he's down in Wagga, which is a hell of a thing. So for the next week, I ferried his aeroplane little by little back to him and, and had a bit of a play with it along the way and got to you know, really like it. Think, wow, good, this is a neat aeroplane. I'm glad I bought one. I'm, this is what Charlie is going to be like. Yeah. And the reason I, I mention this is because I lobbed into Schofield's airfield, which is you know, not does exist anymore, it was on the outskirts of Sydney to top off on fuel. And this old guy wanders over and says, what's that? I said, it's Orion. What sort of engines have it got? It's got a Manasco. He said, Manasco. He said, that name rings a bell. I think I've got a bit from Manasco. Would you be interested in it? And I thought, yeah. I don't know what bit it was, and neither did he, but I thought, any bit's got to be handy. It might be a spare, a widget. I don't know what it was. Yeah. And uh, anyway, so a few weeks later, I'm actually out at Schofield, having delivered Don's Ryan back to him in Wagga. I'm, I'm out there flying Ken's Tiger Moth. And he uh, comes up to me and said, well, do you want that bit or not? So I'm sorry for all about it. Said, yeah, it's in the back of the car. He hands me a brand new supercharger, still oh. in his plastic wrapping. <laughs> oh, that has got to be a handy spare part. Yeah. It's the only spare part for the engine I had. Now, the reason I mention this is we now flash back to current era. I have now put the engine of Charlie back together. It's looking schmick. We've mounted it back in the fuselage, connect everything up. I now have a fuselage and an engine. I can now take it out and run it. So we cranked it up, and now this is on YouTube video. Yeah. Cranked it up for the first time. Now, it hasn't run since 1977, and here we crank it up. It fired up on the third swing of the propeller and just started running fine. But then over the next few minutes, smoke started coming out the exhaust pipes. And I thought, oh, it's just clearing a bit of residual inhibiting compound or something I hadn't got to out. And the smoke got thicker and thicker and thicker, and it's belching smoke. I'm like, oh God, here we go. And finally we shut it down and we analyzed what it could be. And of course there's oil, there's oil under, under the belly of the aeroplane and it's everywhere and we're making smoke. And I'm thinking, God, how does the smoke get into the induction system? And, and Paul said, well, it's a supercharged engine. You've blown your supercharger bearing. Oh. Well, the oil seal on the, on the supercharger drive bearing so oil is getting from the crankcase through the bearing into the supercharger, going into cylinders and being burned and blown out there. She said, great smoke system. <laughs> <laughs> I got a smoke system on the pits, which I deliberately there, which didn't make as much smoke. Yeah. So I pulled the engine out again. I'm getting pretty good at this now. I had, I had the engine out in, a, in about of a day, back on the workbench, and guess which spare part I had? This other supercharger. I literally pulled the supercharger off had a, had a very close look at the thing and then once, once I knew I'd look at it, sure, I compared with my one out of the bag and sure enough you could tell yeah. the one that I had, the seal had gone. It's a spring-loaded type seal and it just failed, old age. Put the other one on, had the engine back in and running it. Within a week I had the engine out, supercharger chain back in, I thought I'm going to be good at this. And the second time we cranked it up, fingers crossed, fired up, no leaks. Beautiful. Yeah. So I now have that spare supercharger on the back of the engine. It's running fine and there's never, of course, the one spare bit. And these are fairly unique little seals. So I now have a supercharger missing a seal. I'm looking for one. If anyone's got a, a Manasco supercharger with a good seal, let me know. I need one. So at least I have a spare supercharger again. Anyway, so now I know I've got a good engine, so she's full steam ahead. I now have an aeroplane. I've got all the wings still wrapped in plastic and they're, they're in this little cradle that I've made for them. So over the next 18 months, we start putting all back on. First the tail goes on, the elevators go on, the wings go on. And finally, um, where would it be? About 
two months ago. She's fully assembled. Engine's working. I taxi it round. It taxis fine. Took it for a few high-speed runs. Everything works. I now apply for all the appropriate bits of paper from the CAA and learned that I should have started making applications sooner, so there was a little bit of a delay whilst, uh, you know, because all the forms say 28 days notice required for this one and for that one. There was about five or seven different forms. Yeah. And I didn't know which one I had to go with first, so I filled them all out and set the whole lot as a on-block book. And I must admit, um, there's a lot of people maligned the CA, but in this case, um, despite the fact that their rules constrain them to how many corners they can cut, let's just say that they have issued me with the approvals as quickly as their bureaucracy allows, so I cannot complain. Right. Um, it finally had to have a final inspection, and the guy came up within a few days. He had a spare slot. Now, normally you're supposed to give him 28 days notice and all that sort of stuff, and then he'll let us know. So I was expecting another two or three weeks before I get inspected. He turned up in two days' notice. Right. Because he had a spare slot. Excellent. So, you know, I take my hat off to the local CA people who've pushed it through as fast as their system will allow. No complaints. And on the 14th of this month, which is less than two weeks ago, yeah. through comes all the bits of paper, the test approvals, the, the certificate of airworthiness and so forth. Um, I don't have any avionics in the airplane and I'm operating off primary controlled airspace, so how do I get around that? A young lady named Megan Thomas, who's a senior tower controller, took care of all of that for me, got the appropriate approvals of flying this airplane without a transponder and so forth. Had a little handheld radio strapped to my leg, I can talk. It all was just ready to go. The weather turned good, so on the 16th, taxied out, pointed down the runway, crossed my fingers and toes and pushed the throttle open, and away she went. And it flew. And it flew faultlessly. I won't say faultlessly. I had a slight aileron rigging problem. No big deal. And all I can think of is you know, um, the aileron was the thing that was damaged when the hangar dropped on them way back. It had been repaired when... Um, this guy stripped all the fabric off. He actually gave me that aileron back and said, this repair job's pretty chatty and it's starting to fall apart. You need to redo it. So I had a, a new repair job done. Just a little gusset plate type thing. Yeah. But it points out the fact that it's not exactly the same as the other aileron. So it flew slightly differently. I've now engineered a little tab to put on. Right. A little trim tab. I've now done five flights in Charlie, overhead the airfield, because I needed to be sure this engine was going to keep going. That was the biggest one. Fingers crossed this engine's going to keep working. And it did. I've done five half-hour flights, so I've done two and a half hours, and, and a couple of those were just on sorting out the outer rigging. The last one I can fly hands and feet off. Okay. So you see that perfectly rigged now. And then the weather's turned to crap, and I'm looking forward to next week doing a few more flights in the thing just to get the feel of it, really. I've got to get a feel for this airplane. It's quite a bit different to a pit special, I can tell you yeah, that, yeah, in terms right. of feel. Uh, big spongy undercarriage is designed for landing on roughish paddocks, so when you land on a smooth runway, you can hardly tell the damn things on the ground. I'm not you know, saying I'm the most perfect lander in the world, but this undercarriage certainly smooths out the bumps. Um, but it works. The engine is just purring away. It's got more power than I expect. I'm getting a thousand feet a minute rate of climb out of this thing. Its top speed is not as fast as a modern airplane with the same horsepower because they've got all wires and things there. But you'll motor along about 100 knots, 75% power. Climbs at a thousand feet a minute and it flies hands and feet off. And so far, I've not had a single problem, and the engine is just purring. Great, great, excellent. So here we are. Charlie is now airborne. I re-registered in this country. I wanted to keep Charlie. Um, alpha prefix has been reserved for a vintage airplane, so it's going to be an Alpha. Yeah. And I wanted a Charlie, so I thought, well, the logical one to go in there was I'll try and get the same registration, AHC, it used to have, but someone's already got that in some other airplane. So I thought, well, what about ABC? Hey, there's a so I got in touch with the CAA and they said, oh, well, it's not exactly reserved, but it used to belong to a, a Simmons Spartan 1923 vintage thing. And they said, yeah, used to belong to. What's the status now? Well, no one's ever actually found the, 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 uh, um, the compliance plate, so someone might have rebuilt it one day. So I said, just on the conjecture that it might be resurrected one day, you're holding this in reserve. And the girl said, well, yeah. I said, well, how about if I promise to give it to the Simmons Spartan owner after he's got the airplane to fly in condition, if it ever happens. <laughs> Deal. <laughs> so I now have Alpha Bravo Charlie on the understanding that if whoever finds a Simmons Spartan compliance plate in a bog somewhere and rebuilds the airplane, you can have it back. <laughs> 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 but I don't think that's going to happen. 
I don't think it's going to happen. So there it is. Uh, Charlie is now my aeroplane completely. I've rebuilt it from scratch. It's been 33 years since the day I bought it till the time it flew, almost to the month. Yeah. And I'm looking forward to uh, having a lot of fun flying it and learning to fly it. And of course, like that Ryan that you saw over the fence when you were 10 years old, you've got it highly polished as well. Yes. It's, oh yeah. Uh, yeah. I spent hundreds and hundreds of hours repolishing it. Yeah. Well, it was polished. I just repolished it. Yeah. And I've gone through several cans of expensive polish to cut it back and all. Uh, but yeah, it's very shiny. It looks stunning. So anyone who wants to come and touch it, you have to wear gloves. And if you put your sweaty fingers on it, I'll hand you the polishing cloth. <laughs> 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 but yeah, I was expecting uh, there to be oil over it because you know, those old engines are a bit oily. The actual engine book says you, know, you can expect to consume up to a litre of oil per hour, which is huge by modern standards. But this thing has exposed rockers. They're not sitting in an oil bath. Yeah. And the only way they're oiled is for oil to trickle down from the crankcase through the push rods to the rockers and then psh, out into the atmosphere. Right? In the last two and a half hours, I put one litre in it. So it's actually oil consumption is pretty damn good. Okay. And the amount that's actually underneath the aeroplane is quite little. No more than I blow out of the pits doing aerobatics. So you just wipe it off and uh, the metal's still shining underneath. So yeah, so keeping it clean is going to be like anything an ongoing job but but she's still sitting there looking pretty shiny so basically it's a silver all over it's a polished metal fuselage i've got silver wings i haven't embellished it with its original um, military color scheme as such because it was in two militaries but i have put its history on the rudder yes on one side it's got its history and its serial number for the netherlands east indies air force which was s56 and on the other side of the rudder i've I've got the uh, the Royal Australian Air Force's insignia, and it was A2950 uh, on the side. So you can read the whole history of the aeroplane, the dates and so forth, on the rudder of the aeroplane yeah. and so forth. There. So that's, that's painted on there. Because it's a historic aeroplane. And all I can say is it's probably one of, like I said, you can probably identify 10 in the world. Some of them aren't in flying condition. Indeed, even that one that I flew for Don Campbell home, is now being rebuilt after a major, major crash. Okay. There's a friend of mine named Peter Pring Shambler in, in Australia is rebuilding it right now, almost from scratch. New, new, a whole new fuselage because it got seriously written off. Yeah. Um, and they're going to put a, 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 a different engine in it because you can't get Monasco engines anymore. The one up in Auckland's now got a, a Czechoslovakian engine. So I'm starting to wonder how many Ryans there are left in the world which are completely original. Yeah. And the only one I can think of is Charlie. Okay. Right? There is one in the Tamora Museum uh, over in Australia, which is pretty well all authentic. I flew that once or twice, um, and the guy kept it in my hangar. But it's got a different uh, oil cooler. Little things like that are not stand, not original. Yeah. You can gloss over that. We call that one an original airplane too. So that would make his one and mine original, and I'm not sure of many others. There probably are, I don't know. But I'd say of those that are flying, probably half of them have got a different engine now, and the other half are original. So we're down to about four or five left in the world in original condition. Wow, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, and it's the youngest airplane I own. I mean, it's only got a total of 700 plus hours. Right. My pits has got 1,700 hours. Right. I've got a little um, emerald sitting there too, which is over 1,000 hours. Um, so even though it's the oldest aeroplane, it's also the youngest aeroplane. So once you've gone through the test flying phase and, and, and you, um, it's all ready to go, are you going to be um, keen to start taking it around the country and take it to air I shows? Or? I don't know. Um, having, as I said earlier on, I've been involved in a lot of air shows over the time and I've seen what certain people in the spectator crowd do to aeroplanes. Usually due ignorance, especially when it comes to fabric aeroplanes, but sometimes quite malicious. I remember one of the Air Force Air Show, we parked a Chinook in the crowd for people to look at and touch. Sealed it up completely, it didn't go on board. We found cigarette butt burns around the fuel cap. Oh, jeez. You wonder who's going to do that? I have seen a guy take his little toddler, I don't know, three, out and stand him on the wing of a pit special to take a photograph of him. And the little toddler ran out along the wing. Fortunately, it was light enough that he didn't go through the fabric. Yeah. The owner, of course, is screaming, blue murder, as he ran towards us. And the guy taking the photograph, the parent, didn't understand what the problem was. No. Right? And if someone did that to Charlie, I would just kill him. Yeah. 
So I'm just wondering, quite frankly, <laughs> whether I'm, I'm going to do that or not. I'll see. It'll have to be the right place at the right time. It'll probably guarded, if you like. I don't know. That, One that, step at a time. That, it would be great to see the, the two rowings that are at Ardmore and your rowing together. Oh, I'm sure that will happen. Stage, the local stuff, yeah. yeah. I'm sure that will happen. I'm gaining more and more confidence in the engine that I've, I've rebuilt. I'm not quite up to flying across Cook Strait to go to the South Island just yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, I haven't been outside gliding range of the airport yet. <laughs> That'll have to happen soon because I want to take it out and spin it and do all those other normal uh, testing, test flying things to make sure that it's all flying as it's supposed to fly. But uh, yeah. <laughs> So I don't know, it's too early days to, to ask you. Yes. It's still yeah. my, my brand new squeaky new toy and uh, give me give me a few months of flying it or 12 months or more and we'll see what, what finally becomes of it. Yeah. And I don't know what will finally become of it because it really ultimately I think needs to go to a flying type museum. Um, you know, I'm about to turn 70. Maybe I've got a good another 10 years of flying, maybe a bit longer if I do what Val Chapman did. Uh, but sooner or later, I mean, it's not the sort of airplane you just sort of, I don't know, flog off to anyone. It's got to, like, like Val Chapman when he interviewed me, you know, he, he wasn't just seeing if I had the money, which I didn't have. He wanted to be sure that I, it was going to a, a good home. It's yes. like, like selling your daughter. You know? <laughs> yeah. Got to go to the right home. Well, if ever I part with Charlie, it's going to have to go to the right home. It's going to have to go to a serious flying museum, not a static, not stuck in a bloody museum somewhere not flying that's not good at all yeah. uh, and there are a number of those around the world there's two of them in Australia one of them which already operates a Orion the other one doesn't maybe they'd like one if you ever hear this Bob Delahunty <laughs> <laughs> um, in the States maybe um, I know that a while a long time ago now I got a letter from a guy in, in Holland asking about it because whilst it was a Dutch airplane None of them ever got to Holland or right. Europe at all, right. yeah. and they were looking for one. I believe they now have one in a museum there. I don't know which one it is of, the, of that, that 20 or so, but they've got one, but it's not flying, yeah. but it's a museum piece there, part of their, their Air Force history over there. So, yeah, uh, I'm going to enjoy it for a while, make sure it's a perfect aeroplane as far as I can, and then we'll see. Yeah. And, of course, it's going to cost a little more than the 20 grand that I pay for it. Because yeah. there's about two million man hours gone out over the last thirty <laughs> years, I can tell you that. Thirty-three yeah. years. Yeah. I don't know. We'll see. It's not an ordinary aeroplane. It won't have an ordinary ending. Well, I mean, it's uh, it's great to have been able to follow this for the last few years since I interviewed you for an, oh. uh, an article where most people in New Zealand didn't even know it was even here at that stage. And I still, the, I still don't think they do. No, that's right. And you know, now that you've got it flying, congratulations! And I think it's awesome. I think that's fantastic. Yeah. I, 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 well, I say I don't think I'm not made a big fanfare out of it. As no. far as I'm, a lot of people said, oh, it's 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 already out there, it's ready to go. I said, no, well, no, it's not. As far as I'm concerned, this test flying phase is still part of me putting it together. Yes. Yep. Uh, just as I said, when I bought it, uh, it was in a single seat configuration. I mean, you can cover the front cockpit in. It's a two seater, but you can cover the front cockpit. In. When I bought it, it had a long range fuel tank bolted to the seat mounts, which I've still got the fuel tank. I'm not putting that back in. It's going to, it's going to ultimately be a two-seater. Yeah. I've got the seats and I've already got the upholstery already cut and made for it. Yeah. But right now I'm test flying in a single-seat configuration until I put all the... Because I've got to put some avionics in it ultimately. Um, within After, say, next week when I fly it, another two, three flights just to do another couple of little checkpoints, it's going to come back on the ground for maybe a month while I put all these new decent avionics in it. I've got lightweight stuff, which I'm going to have as a little self-powered package, and it's going to be as discreet as I can to not spoil the lines of it. Once that's done, I can then start to go further afield, and also probably by Christmas time, it'll I'll open up to be two-seat. I haven't even made a front windscreen for it yet. Right. Right. So as far as I'm concerned, still a, the, the, this initial flying is still part of its final development. Maybe about Christmas time, I can go, da-da, here we are, world. Here is the final completed thing in all aspects, both physically and it's been flown enough to prove that it works. Yes. And then someone, like, you can queue up to be the first passenger. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, no, so I haven't made a big fanfare. A few people came out and took photographs of the first flight. Cool. Second flight that afternoon, no one came. Right. And it was fine by me. I just wanted to do my thing. But, but, so I'm not making a big public fanfare out of it because, you know, it's not finished. I might come across some glitch 
We took ground it for a while. Certainly it's going to be on the ground for about a month while I do the avionics. Yeah. But I've, I have no problem with that. I'm quite happy I now have a viable airplane, so I'll now do a good job of installing avionics in a discreet way and, uh, and fly. I still have the pits to fly when I feel like the urge to. Yeah. In fact, I took that out the other day just to remind me what a really, really agile airplane still feels like. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so that's about all I can tell you at this stage. Excellent. Well, well done. Thank you very much. No problem. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Ho.